with me in 1 Samuel 16, the heart of this passage, verses 1 to 13, is verse 7, if you'll look with me there. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Let's pray. Fathers, we read this morning, acceptable worship is fueled by reverence and awe. Lord, we pray that as we make our way through this text, you would fuel, that you would provoke that reverence and that awe. As we behold your person, your work, your worth, your beauty in the face of your son, Jesus Christ, our greater king. And we ask this for his sake. Amen. When I pastored in Cincinnati, Heather and I had this apartment right next to King's Island Amusement Park. Now, this was right after 9-11. And Ella had just been born. And the first night we were there at 10 p.m. on the dot, explosions began to take place. Well, again, I was thinking 9-11 were being bombed. I grabbed Ella, who was an infant, and I got down in the floor and covered her up. Turns out it was not explosions. It was fireworks at King's Island. Turns out they do those fireworks every night at 10 p.m. Well, the very next night, the same thing happened, and I did the same thing. I, it just scared me to death. And about the third night, uh, I looked at Heather, and I said, why don't they do those fireworks at 10 a.m. rather than 10 p.m. when everybody's trying to sleep? She looked at me flabbergasted. Of course, we understand that fireworks can't be seen. They can't be appreciated in the light of day. They have to be seen with the backdrop of darkness. And that's how it is with grace. It really is. Till you come to grips with the darkness of your sin. There is no celebrating the grace and the mercy of God. And I think that helps answer the often asked question, why didn't God just give Israel David from the very beginning? Why did he give them Saul? Well, they weren't ready for the grace of the Lord's provision. They wanted it their way. And they wanted a king like the other nations who would fight their battles for them. They had rejected God as their king. And so God gave them over to their desires, as we've seen. And as always with doing it our way, things have gotten darker for Israel. Really dark with Saul, who is the object of their desire. And it's in the, the context and, and in the backdrop of these dark times that God in his grace provides a king who's going to change the trajectory of history. Now when we open up in chapter 16, Samuel has already returned back to his hometown of Ramah after his final confrontation with Saul at Gilgal. And Saul has returned to his home in Gibeah. And now some unspecified time has passed. We don't know how much time has passed between chapter 15 and chapter 16. It's not important. 
But in verse 1, we see the situation at hand, and we could describe that situation as a situation of great darkness. Look with me in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? He says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself. I love that. It's fundamentally God providing for himself. God has provided for, he says, myself, a king among his sons. Now, Samuel's sorrow was over the fact that he loved Saul. And Saul had apostatized. He had, um, he had committed great acts of idolatry, but it went beyond that. He was grieving over Israel's rejection of the Lord as king and the fallout that had come to full bloom at that point. It was coming home to roost. You know, in a fallen world, all of us will grieve. That's just a reality. The question is, are we grieving? Are we mourning over the right things? Do we grieve over the unbelief and the moral and the ethical ignorance in our culture? Those are questions we need to ask. Does anything ever stir us to grieve besides the things that personally affect us, our comfort and our security? Or... Are we just indifferent to these things? Let me offer you this. When we are burdened by someone else's brokenness, someone else's sins that do not directly affect us, or the brokenness of a situation for that matter, it's a gift. That burden is a gift. We aren't naturally prone to, as the the reformers would use this Latin corum Deo before the face of God. We're not prone to go before the face of God. That's not natural to us. And it's burdens like these, burdens over brokenness that the Spirit often uses to lead us to the face of God. Burdens are graces. And I think Richard Phillips is correct when he asserts that the first sign that God is about to act in mercy is that he places a burden on his people who then in turn pray. In fact, Ian Murray has argued, and I think rightly, that the great awakenings in our country have always been preceded by awakening a revival of prayer which has always been preceded by great burdens for the brokenness in our culture. And Samuel here is grieving. And his grief comes in the context clearly as he is communing with the Lord. Verse 1, that was Samuel's natural position. He lived life quorum Deo. And while in communion, the Lord instructs Samuel to go to Bethlehem. 
a town around 11 miles south of Ramah where he lived. And he was to go to a man's house named Jesse. Now, we don't know if he knew who Jesse was. This may have just been revelation. He was a prophet. But we know who Jesse is. Remember, not in the Hebrew Bible, but in our English Bibles, the book of Ruth precedes the book of 1 Samuel. And at the very end of Ruth, there's a genealogy. It really gives us the heart of what's going on in the book of Ruth. It's not fundamentally about dating, as some have treated the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth's genealogy at the very end tells us why that book is so important. Because there's a man named Jesse who will father a man named David. And Jesse is from the descendant of Perez who is the son of Judah. And we know from Genesis 49, 8 to 12, that it will be through the line of Judah the Messiah will come, the hope of the world. The obedience of the nations will come through this man. And so, Jesse, that name kind of tips us off at this point, and he has to go to Bethlehem to meet him. Now, to get there, he has to go through a place called Gibeah. That is where Saul lives. And that brings us to the stress of this passage, which we could describe as fundamental dread. Look with me in verses 2 and 3. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Now, this is not the Samuel that we have been accustomed to. We have seen this man stand up to Saul time and time again. All of a sudden, we see this crippling fear. So why the fear? Well, Saul, at this point, is he's plummeting. And Samuel recognizes that. In fact, we'll see next time that these evil spirits have come upon Saul. And it's likely that Samuel recognizes that. Saul is enslaved to self-glory. It's a real issue that we all struggle with. And one of the manifestations of self-glory is we are more position-oriented than submission-oriented. And Saul senses he's losing his position. And what is he going to do when he finds out that Samuel is going to anoint his replacement, who does not come from his family? That's the surface-level reason that Samuel is fearful. But let's get to the root of the problem of fear. We have our surface-level reasons for fear, and then we have the real root causes of fear. The root cause of Samuel's fear is that God has not yet provided him the grace that he will need if he has to be confronted with Saul. And he's not trusting the Lord for his future grace. Much of our fear is a result of that. We're living today hoping for tomorrow's manna. That's what Israel was taught in the wilderness. 
That's why they were only to receive the manna for the day. God was teaching them that he's going to show up tomorrow as well. Samuel was fearful. He was enslaved to this fear because he was not trusting in tomorrow's provision, God's grace, his, his manna for tomorrow. And so in one and a half verses, we see two emotional states from Samuel that can cripple a person from productive activity. Grief and fear. And the Lord, by his grace, addresses both so that Samuel can carry out what has been called the capstone of his career. And this reminds us as believers that sadness and fear do not have the final word with us. They can cripple us, but they're not the final word. God's word is the final word. Notice me in the second part of verse 2. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Now this is not the Lord encouraging Samuel to lie or to deceive. Uh, this is actually a true statement. And though it wasn't a comprehensive statement, it was a true statement. Telling part of what one believes and knows to be true in order to conceal other information is morally right in some situations especially when the recipient of that information does not plan to steward that information well. Proverbs 14 verse or Proverbs 12 verse 23 says, a prudent man conceals knowledge. So this isn't a lie, it just wasn't the comprehensive truth. Saul was not owed all the information because he would not have stewarded that information in a godly way. And that brings us to Essentially, the search of this passage, Saul's or Samuel's search for a king, and the initial search will lead to disappointment. Notice in verse 4 Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? We don't know why they're trembling. Maybe they heard about what he did to Agag. But I tend to think that they knew that Samuel and the king were on the outs with each other. And they knew that the king could be violent. He'd already tried to put his son to death one time. And so being associated with the man that the king was on the outs with is likely the reason, I think, that they were fearful. Verse 5, and he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab looked like a king 
evidently. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Maybe Eliab was tall. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. I want you to notice the grace here. If God does not act in this particular case, Samuel will end up, better said, Israel will end up with Saul part two. Often the Lord has to save us from our saviors. That is our self-appointed solutions to our dilemmas. Our natural solutions to our problems and needs. And every self-appointed savior, tragically and ironically, provides the very opposite of what it promises. There's no exception to that. Self-appointed saviors enslave. They never redeem. And that's the human dilemma. That is our natural default mode, is to go horizontal looking for our saviors. And Samuel, even at the height of his ministry, and this was a very godly prophet, is being taught, and we're being taught, and Samuel's being humbled, and we are being humbled here by his and our inability to judge based on outward appearance. Had he had the opportunity to peer into the future and seen this man Eliab in the valley of Elah serving in Saul's army, not in the most helpful way, he never would have said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But outwardly, Eliab looked like a king. But verse 7, now this is such a crucial verse, it's the key to Understanding 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, perhaps you could say it's the key to understanding everything. At the end of the day, there are really only two approaches. There's only two perspectives on life. There's the outward perspective that believes that the really important things are the things that we can see the things that we can taste, the things that we can physically feel and, and, and touch and hear. That outward perspective leads to five potential places. Let me offer you these five potential places as I thought about that this week. First of all, when you are focused on the outward rather than the inward, you will have, generally speaking, an inordinate occupation with appearance. That's epidemic in the West. The, look this stat up. The American Association of Plastic Surgeons said that in uh, 2018, there were 17.7 million cosmetic procedures 
in the United States. Now, some of those were necessary. There are people that are injured. I understand that. But 17.7 million in a country with 325 million, that's a pretty high percentage. Inordinate occupation with appearance. Secondly, it will lead us to be obsessed with possessions. The person with the biggest pile wins in the end. The current total consumer debt in the U.S. is over $4 trillion. Again, 325 million people, $4 trillion. And this is a $197 billion increase from just five years ago. And our population hasn't grown that significantly in five years. Third, there will be an inordinate occupation with pleasure and entertainment. Now, when I say pleasure, it's, it's parody pleasure. Because as the psalmist says, at his right hand is pleasure forevermore. The Lord is all about pleasure. But he recognizes where the fount of true and enduring pleasure resides. This is worldly pleasure that I'm referring to here. An inordinate occupation with pleasure and entertainment. Think about this. There are now more TVs in every house on average than people. And then this week I read an article. I'm about to irritate some young people here. Uh, in the Boston Globe about the enslaving, addicting effects of Fortnite. Kids are not sleeping. They're not eating. One kid broke, he broke the window of his parents' house or his door of, the, of, the, of their car to get the contraption. I don't even know what these contraptions are called, but to get in there so he could play his Fortnite. Athletes are quitting sports. Kids are flunking out because of the ad addicting effects of Fortnite. And then, the American Addiction Center. Listen to this. 19.7 million Americans, 12 and older, battle substance abuse. This is the 2017 study. It's the latest I could find. 19.7 million Americans battle substance abuse. The American Addiction Center says that drugs cost U.S. society more than $740 billion a year in lost workplace productivity, health care costs, and crime-related costs. There's also, when you focus on the outward, satisfaction with the outward appearance of righteousness. Maybe that's even more damning and damaging. Where you are content with people thinking that you are godlier than you really are. And you're not so concerned with what God thinks. 
an outward form of righteousness. So you come to church with your holy smiles, and yet there's no brokenness over your sin at home. Or when you're by yourself. And fifth, and most related to this particular passage, when you focus on the outward, you're likely to misevaluate potential leadership. And there's a war this side of heaven between those two perspectives, the outward perspective and the inward. And, and that's why we need the Word of God. We need it daily to renew our default way of thinking because we are much more like Samuel here than probably we even realize look with me in verse 8 then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel Jesse was thinking if it's not Eliab it has to be Abinadab and he that is Samuel said neither has the Lord chosen this one then Jesse made Shammah passed by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass by before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. I can imagine Jesse's frustration at this point. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Both Samuel's initial way of thinking and Jesse's very evident way of thinking is a mirror of our own way of thinking. And though this text is centrally um, about something more significant than our tendency towards focusing on outward things, it's certainly addressing that. And that's why we have to renew our minds in these realities. And yet, there's something bigger at stake than just the way we think. And that brings us to the solution. We've seen the situation... We've seen, saw Samuel's stress. We've seen the search, which has been fruitless. And that brings us to the solution. Listen, in Scripture, the solution is always grace. In your marriage, the solution is always grace. In your parenting, the solution is always grace. In your brokenness, the solution is always grace. In this case, the grace of God's provision in David. Look with me in verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Doesn't that just make your heart sing? We have been in some dark and deep waters for 15 chapters. You think it's hard to hear it. It's hard to preach it. And now we're seeing marvelous grace before our very eyes. He, he brought him in. We're not given his name yet. Now he was ready. He had a, a reddish complexion. He had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. So uh, God does not look on the things we look upon, but that doesn't mean he has to be ugly. 
the Lord's just not choosing him because he's, he's handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. You know, I was just thinking about how the Lord finds his people in unique places. He found Joseph in a prison. He found Moses on the backside of the desert. And he finds David in a sheep pen. And the Lord knew where every single one of these men were. Isn't that comforting? I mean, I find that highly comforting. He knows where his people are. He is the God who sees, as Hagar named him. But here's the point. Everyone has been wrong at this point, including Samuel, except the Lord. And that is the ground of our hope. The, the kingdom of God is secure only with the Lord. Notice with me in verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Let me read this another way, more literal way. So Samuel, Samuel messiahed him with oil. That's how you could read that literally. He messiahed him with oil. Now it, it, it's easy to lose sight of the fact, based on what you know about David, and most of you know quite a bit about David, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that he's not some kind of superhuman. He's very real. As we will read on in the book. Samuel, or David, was just an ordinary man, an ordinary boy like you and me. In fact, the great aspects of his life are all the result of the same Holy Spirit that has sealed every believer here. I love what Walter Chantry says about him. This is so beautiful. He would become the champion of armies, a fugitive in the desert, living as a sort of Robin Hood to the people of God, while pursued by a madman. He would sit on the throne of Israel, leading God's people to a golden era, and personally writing the greatest prayer book of all time. We know it was the book of the Psalms. He would be a prodigal, falling deeply into sin, but humbly blazing a trail of repentance to give all sinners hope. Yet, as he had a horn of oil poured on his head, he was a simple teenage shepherd in a small agricultural village. Isn't that a good word? Interestingly, God anoints David 10 plus years before he's enthroned as king. I think that's very significant. Why? It takes a long time to prepare a person for ministry. It takes a long time and as we're going to see, it takes pain. It takes trials. It takes difficulties to prepare a person. Now, I think this is a, a threefold word for our youth 
and for our young adults here this morning. First of all, instead of focusing on being greatly used by the Lord, focus, invest your years of your youth in being usable. I had a pastor friend yesterday who had some Bible college students in his home this weekend, and he was he said they played a Bible trivia game, and he said he recognized that you, you, you don't really... Bible trivia is not the point of the Bible, but you can learn something about what people know about the Bible from Bible trivia. And he, he was astounded by the lack of biblical knowledge that Bible students had. And he texted me about that, and he was grieving over that. Instead of focusing on being greatly used of the Lord, focus on being usable. Concern yourself. Invest your youth in the things of God. On the things that you will be happy you invested in on your deathbed. God knows where you are. Second, your mundane life of obscurity is part of the, the preparation. Your mundane life of obscurity is part of the preparation. Who had a more mundane life? Well, except for the lions and the bears. Than David. Backside of the desert, not even regarded by his brothers or his father. Living in obscurity. And all of that was part of the preparation. We'll see that more in chapter 17. Third, the Lord is not in a hurry. The Lord is not in a hurry. Trust his wisdom. Trust his providence. Trust his plan, his will. Know that his way is more of a crock pot than a microwave. But it's the sure way. Now note, in the last part of verse 13, as we bring this to a close, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, we're going to see next time that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The Spirit would anoint these figures, these offices, they weren't sealed with the Spirit as believers are, the New Covenant. But they would depart. The Spirit would depart based on His appraisal of things. The Spirit never departs from David, even when he committed adultery and murder. Why? Because even in that sin, in his repentance, he says, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He was a man of true repentance. The Spirit came on him. And he remained with him. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Actually, it's the second part of verse 13 here. That we hear the name David in 1 Samuel for the first time. And in the Hebrew Bible, it's the first time we read the name David. Because in the Hebrew Bible, and I think we missed something when we, when we failed to regard the order of the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, Judges precedes 1 Samuel. In our English Bibles, Ruth does. In Ruth, we see the name David. But in the Hebrew Bible, this is the first time we read the word 
the name David. And this name will become the greatest human name in all of Scripture until the coming of his far-off grandson. In fact, we will find David's name in the very first verse of the New Testament. Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then we'll read it in the sixth, the last verse of the New Testament. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. I am the root and the descendant of David. How can you be both the root and the descendant? You have to be both God and man, one person. In all, his name will appear 58 times in the New Testament. David, which that name means beloved, is a gift to the people of God. You could say, for God so loved the world that he gave David. In a very real sense. And the Holy Spirit is a gift to David. But as Del Ralph Davis asserts, this was also, this, the Holy Spirit coming upon him was equipping him for conflict. The kind of conflict that makes his battles with the lions and the bears seem like junior varsity. Indeed, no sooner does the Spirit come on David than he is propelled into a world of trouble. We'll see that starting next week. The envy, the anger, the murderous plots of Saul, especially as we open up in chapter 18. The, David here, the man with the Holy Spirit, he's going to be hunted, he's going to be uh, betrayed, he's going to be trapped, he's going to be exiled until the day Saul dies. Indeed, when the Spirit comes on David, the trouble starts. It's only beginning. The kind that will expose wickedness and the kind of trouble that will actually secure righteousness. And that's why something very important happened that day in old little town of Bethlehem. That is going to change the course of history and it's going to change the trajectory of what God is doing to bring about the goal of history, which is a person. Indeed, a thousand years later, an angel would come, ironically, to shepherds. Shepherds whose testimonies would not even hold up in a court of law. God is reversing the value of things in this broken world. And the angel would announce to these shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And before his earthly ministry begins, Luke 3 tells us the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. Yes, David was a man after God's own heart, but you, the Lord Jesus, are the beloved son with you I am well-pleased. The well-pleasing son. But the last son anyone would have chosen in their natural state. 
his own hometown, get this, in Mark 6, verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? In other words, he came and he's just one of us. Others said, Matthew 11, he is a glutton and a drunkard. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say he's a glutton. In other words, this one has too much fun. Others said, John 7, 41, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? It comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. Besides the irony of that statement, because he was a descendant of David and he was from, born in Bethlehem, they thought he wasn't from the right place. But the biggest surprise of all was for them, Messiah's, don't suffer. Matthew 27. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. And we will believe in him. Messiahs don't die on Roman crosses. Indeed, David was an unlikely choice that confounded all human expectations. And David will be the greatest type the greatest picture, foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ in all the Old Testament. But with all the types, there is discontinuity. That is, there's some aspect of the type that is marred by creaturely limitations and even sin. No, not even David could have or would have done what was necessary to save the people of God. Because salvation involves more than just salvation from political enemies. Earthly and political enemies. Salvation required a death to satisfy divine justice. The kind of justice that would fall that would require an infinite penalty. An infinite payment. Only God himself could do that. But the penalty is on man. And so only man could do that. It would require a God-man. Both the shoot and the root of David. One who could take the justice of God and then be raised from the grave. Neither of which David could pull off. But the greater David did. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 to remember this Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Get this. Raised from the dead. But before he even gets to the resurrection, here's what he says. Descended from David. This is my gospel. He says, remember that. And so as we come to the table, that's exactly what we are called to do. We're called to remember the greater David. Yes, David was a glorious type, and we're going to see that over and over again in 1 Samuel. It's going to teach us so many glorious things about the Lord Jesus. 
But the table brings us back to reality. As we remember our Savior, our Messiah, our King, who accomplished salvation for us. He didn't make it possible. He accomplished it for us. In fact, His salvation accomplished overcoming your unbelief so that you would trust Him and believe in Him. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to prepare our hearts. And if you're visiting with us, we would love for you to participate at the table with us upon a couple of conditions. You've been born again. You're trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation. You're a baptized believer and a member in good standing of a like-minded church. But let's pray and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts for this table. Father, thank you for the greater David. Thank you for your mercy that comes to us in the greater David, the grace that comes to us. We thank you, Lord, that when you look on our hearts, you see sin, you see unbelief. But when you look on, on his heart, you see the well-pleasing son. And our hope is bound up in him. And Father, we, we thank you that the Christ suffered once for sins, our sins. The righteous one for the unrighteous, that is us. The righteous one who fulfilled all the terms of the covenant in his obedience, in his love. That he might bring us to you. Reconciliation. Overcoming our alienation, our great problem. He was put to death in the flesh for us. Satisfying divine justice. And made alive in the spirit for us, for our pardon, for our justification. And Father, as he has redeemed us from the penalty of sin, he has also redeemed us from the power of sin. I pray, Lord, that you would show us before we partake areas in our life that need to be repented of. Lord, maybe there's an attitude that we have that needs to be forsaken. Maybe it's gripping anxiety and fear Lord whatever that is I pray you would show it to us in godly sorrow and the power of your spirit we may turn from that to Christ our hope our king and we thank you for this time at the table in Jesus name Amen